I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Different styles of hunting come with their own challenges, with archery providing a myriad of challenges to your modern hunter. And primitive weapons like muzzleloaders ranging from flintlocks to modern inlines, bringing with them their own special set of difficulties, it's fair to say that rifle hunting on the surface should be easy. All you have to do is point and shoot, right? Modern technology does the rest. Well, that's not exactly how it works. To better help me explain just exactly what I'm talking about, we have the guys from Heartland Precision Rifles and Wolfden with us in the studio today to talk about the challenges behind the scenes of a rifle hunt and how one click can make the difference between a grip and grin and a lost game animal. So I'm going to let you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves. Tell a bit about yourselves, Chris. We'll start off with you. Yeah, no worries. Well, firstly, thanks very much for having me on, mate. Uh, I guess I'll uh, explain my background first. So I kind of grew up in, in Australia. You hear that? I was the accent there. And uh, did a fair bit of hunting and shooting in the mountains around uh, South Australia there and then joined the military and spent some time over in the Middle East and uh, restreamed into the sniper community for a while and did some courses in sniping, advanced sniping, uh, picked up my sniper supervisor's courses, uh, some tracking courses as well. And then uh, a myriad of, of other courses that kind of supplement those uh, those main qualifications and then Ended up uh, taking sabbatical for a little while to go contract with the Australian government back over in Kabul, you know, because I missed the place so much over in Afghanistan there. And then uh, uh, came back to the sniper community for another few years as a supervisor again, uh, commanding six operational sniper teams, and then took a position over here in the States with Applied Ballistics as the training manager, standing up their training division. And did that for the last three and a half odd years, worked on some government contracts, uh, was involved with a, a different range of training across military, law enforcement and civilian sectors, everything from uh, special operations all the way down to your uh, run of the mill hunter. And uh, then recently branched out and started my own company, Wolfden. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a wild ride. So, yeah. Sounds like it. Zach? Yeah, so uh, so I've been on here before. So I'm Zach Darlington with uh, Heartland Precision Rifles. I'm one of the co-owners and uh, the lead rifle builder uh, for our custom side of the operation. Um, I'm also one of our lead rifle instructors down here in the southern operation out of Florida. We've got two different locations out of Nebraska and then now here in Florida as well. Um, so I've had my background a little bit primarily um, in this walk of life with um, you know my I guess my co-instructors around the table here, especially Bill. Um, and then uh, Kenny Wynn uh, was we started with T3 Operational Solutions. Um, and so that was kind of more of just, you know, law enforcement, uh, private security, um, just firearms training in general. Um, and then as we got a chance to expand, um, I got into the private security sector a little bit as well. I did some executive protection um, operations for a few years. And that was kind of my main role um, with special events and uh, just protection details. Um, then as Heartland kind of really started picking up in Florida, uh, decided to step out, um, of that realm full time and more into, you know, Heartland precision and put all my focus there and, um, still have some, you know, consultation, uh, roles in, in a slight capacity there. 
Um, but, you know, primarily just uh, our focus is, you know, really trying to grow and blend the precision rifle community and the, you know, outdoors hunter um, and truly hoping to, you know, make that uh, everyday hunter really see the just absolute maximum capabilities of not only their rifle systems, but themselves as marksmen. Bill? Again, thanks for having having me, Chris. Uh, thank you earlier. I'm uh, a, a lead instructor with Heartland Precision Rifle up in Nebraska. Work for Kenny Wynn up there. Um, I've been in the National Guard in Nebraska for uh, longer than I'd like to admit, but around 30 years. <laughs> uh, but uh, So I came on full-time with, with the National Guard in about 2003. Uh, as an AGR soldier there, and um, they told me, ah, oh, we'll send you off to Camp Perry, Ohio, and we'll send you off to these, all these matches to to uh, to compete, and we'll give you all this ammo and, and your rifles and everything else. And I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. Well, they kind of created a monster when they did that. So <laughs> uh, did a little competitive shooting with uh, with the state teams there for a while, and then I got on with the all-guard service rifle team, shot with them for about 10 years as well, and uh, then I came on shortly after that with Kenny and HPR, and I've been training with him ever since. Yeah, so I live in southeast Nebraska and work in Lincoln. So it's safe to say we've got enough knowledge sitting around the table to <laughs> tell you how to shoot a deer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I know I know. Chris not so much with deer. I think his thing's been more more ruse, as he calls them. Oh, goats. Yeah, <laughs> goats, yeah, goats. I'm not even going to get touched that. Gonna get <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, what do you hunt in Australia? Oh, a range of different things that move. No, um, <laughs> where I where I grew up, it's all uh, goats in the mountains there. So I've uh, laid waste to a lot of goats over the over the few years. So that's for sure. It's my Stack understanding. Six high. It's my understanding that the uh, the terrain that goats will put you in can create quite the quite a difficult hunt. Yeah, so those mountains are actually pretty similar to a lot of the like peak mountains in Afghan in some ways. Uh, very, you know, there's a lot of well there's a few more trees in the mountains up there in australia but it's basically you come down off that that first mountain step over maybe a foot wide uh runoff uh, and then straight onto the next mountain and straight back up and if you think you're walking straight up that mountain you're wrong uh, you got to zigzag up that bad boy to get to the ridge line so it uh, kind of behooves you to get it, climb that first mountain and, and uh, stay on that ridge line all the way <laughs> along for the entire day otherwise you're doing that footwork yeah yeah, the only thing climbing straight up that mountain is the goat. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You better believe I ain't chasing him up there. Not at, not at that speed. So that's yeah. why you got into the long range portion of the shooting, yeah, right? Yeah, right. That's, yeah, that's how that came about. Yeah. I kind of was like, well, you know, if we just do this long range thing, I don't have to walk as far. But, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Zach, when we talked about this a while ago, we talked about what are we going to talk about? We covered quite a bit about the uh, Extended Rage Game Harvest class last time we had you in here yep. and and one thing we didn't really touch on a lot there was optics. Yeah. Uh, because as we said, then optics is a podcast in and of itself. Oh yeah. We, we did our best to just peek down as many rabbit holes as we could and not fully submerge. And this was the one that I thought would definitely, you know, be worth another look, especially with just the advancement of technology and quality of components. And I mean, there's so many options out there nowadays that, um, you know, you don't, used to be where okay if you're going to set up a hunting rifle you go to your dad or your uncle or your grandpa that's been doing it so what should i do and whatever they say that's kind of what you go with and so now there's a lot more options out there that you know i just want guys to know that there's options out there really for any price point too whether you're willing to spend that top dollar you know and really go for that luxury setup 
Um, or if you may be wanting to kind of get into the game, but also don't want to be limited, there's also something for those guys as well. And that's a tough thing to look at, especially when you're talking to like your grandfather or, or somebody, your hunting mentor, who's been your hunting mentor your entire life. And they've got 40 plus years on you. Um, the, what was a quality scope to them 60 years ago may still be under the same name, but it's not the quality it was then. And the first one I can think to come to mind is, is Redfield. Mm -hmm. Redfield used to make a quality U.S. made optic. Now it's mm, spotty. It's going to be, it's going to be, they're, they're kind of like, you go to the Walmart, good chance there's going to be one on there. (laughs) But if you're, if you're setting one up yourself, I don't know a lot of people that are going to pick it if that's like, if they got the option of anything, you know? And so I think, um, I know, so Chris has got some tie in with, with Vortex and Vortex is one of the best that offers so many different price points of just quality setups. I mean, anywhere from your dedicated hunting setups to your kind of crossover hybrid setups to your, you know, just dedicated, you know, long range marksman um, optics and target optics. And so they, I think in my opinion, they've kind of pushed the envelope to really raise the bar for other brands to offer really all around, um, you know, options for all, all levels of shooters. You know, that's kind of where you start to see other companies stepping in, like, you no know, Bushnell even trying to, you know, raise their bar to where they're offering different options. Or, you know, we've talked about Athlon and with their, you know, kind of, they're coming up in the last, you know, roughly 10 years of getting their popularity. And then you've got, you know, companies like Vortex, where I feel like they're the ones, in my opinion, that have kind of really set that, that stage and are at least bringing more options to the table for people. Yeah, I think they pushed the industry fairly yeah. hard. Hey, Oh, absolutely. When they came on the scene a few years ago, they set the bar and they set it high. Yeah. Because they offered a quality product at every single price point. And then they were able to reach a market that, that nobody else could because you had this mid-level scope that still performed as your as good as your high-end hunting scope did as, as far as most people are concerned what a high-end scope would be. Mm-hmm. And for what for they half the price to do. Right. Yeah. You know, most people aren't trying to stretch it out and really see how much, how well it's tracking, so to say, you know, running out to a thousand. But if they're maybe taking a 300 yard shot, they're not really having to push the boundaries or capabilities of the optic in itself. And so that's where Vortex kind of came in and said, hey, with these options, you can, you can really push that envelope. Um, and so I know they've got so many different options. Chris, what would be some that I think, you know, I know you've had your hand in, in a myriad of different, um, you know, of the development processes. So then in terms of what you've seen when you first kind of got your hands on some to what they're offering now, how much has changed in just the, I guess, the quality of components and the packages that are out there? Yeah, I think, uh, well, firstly, when we look at, you know, what scopes are available and that obviously the the price points to be considered. But um, when I start looking at what scope I'm going to utilize on a particular setup, I'm interested in glass and, and you know, we talked about tracking, but it's, it's less relevant when you start to look at hunting applications at particular ranges, more relevant for long range shooting. So glass is always a big one for me. And that's obviously going to, uh, you know, that's going to be determined by your price point as well. And I understand that, you know, some shooters can't go out and drop one, two K on a, on a hunting scope, but there's also really great options out there for much less than that. Yeah. And I think that that's one thing that a uh, vortex has done really well. 
um, you know, up and up until this point where they're they're offering those those scopes with a lot of really great features at mm. an excellent price point, which in other areas of the industry would otherwise be you know somewhat more expensive. And so that's that's what I've come to really like yeah. about some of those hunting scopes on the uh, the Vortex lines there. That- well, and I mean you're spot on with that. And I think the first one that comes to mind where when I so like when we talked about on the last podcast, really where the extended range game harvest, the long range hunt prep uh, course that we run came from, um, from those hunters kind of coming to me, and I'm having to look at their equipment because you know me as a long range you know precision instructor. You know, it's almost like when you train in the military or law enforcement, whatever, you kind of say, you know, train how you fight, train in a realistic manner. So I'm one of those guys, if I'm always doing this long range precision, when I go hunt, why am I going to go and use a whole different setup? You know, I'm going to hunt with what I know best. And so that includes optics that are a little bit more long range designed in terms of maybe the, you know, tactile and adjustable turrets or first focal plane reticles or, you know, larger objective bells or, you know, large magnification ranges. And so that sort of thing was where I started realizing on a dedicated hunting setup is not necessarily what, you know, guys are looking for and typically selecting. Um, I started noticing with like the, you know, some of the Collis line or uh, Steiner, you know, that's, those are kind of big or Swarovski. Uh, those are big hunting, uh, you know, glass that I see like high end glass or high end hunting optics that guys will select. But I've not been a huge fan of the, I guess, the adjustability in the, you know, the turret systems and stuff like that, at least that I've not personally had my hands on to speak to. But Vortex offers the Razor HDLHT which is, in my opinion, one of the best kind of crossover hybrids that's truly functional and capable in a hunting application where it's not as heavy and big and bulky um, as your traditional or your typical, you know, uh, target optics. But then it still has your adjustable turrets. It has, you know, a usable reticle Uh, there. They just released their new line, um, which was what uh, I think it was a 2.5 to 22 uh, that's a first focal plane. Uh, their first series was all, I believe, second focal plane at least. And so I know that the the offering of that LHT has a lot of options where, you know, you're able to, you could go and just hunt with it. But if you came out to a course with us, you're going to stretch that thing and you're going to stretch mm-hmm. it a ways and it's going to perform and it's going to track well. I, well, I think too, Zach, you know, you uh, talk about locking turrets and, uh, you know, the reticle and that's all relative to ultimately if you're looking at going into a hunting application and you're trying to deck that weapon system out with a scope that's going to meet your needs mm-hmm. like if you if you can determine firstly and foremost hey am i going to dial this weapon system out for you know to adjust my sighting system or am i going to uh, just run holds mm-hmm. that'll ultimately determine hey can i do i need a lockable turret do i need a yeah. cap turret can i get away with a cap turret uh, or do I want the best of both worlds where I can dial and hold all at once? And, you know, that's conducive to running a locking turret yep. just so you're not accidentally bumping those sights on the move, right? So it's funny you mentioned that specifically on the topic of locking turrets. Like that was never a concern to me as a hunter. On my first, one of my first hunting setups that I had is like a kind of a crossover. Um, I ran a 3 to 15 by 44 of the PST Gen 2. Um, loved it. Great setup, great scope tracks. Well, I mean, really great bang for your buck. Um, until I tossed it in the truck and the turret spun on me and I get up on that. I got up on the coyote. I pulled the trigger 
and it looked like I curved the bullet from the movie Wanted. I'm talking about <laughs> my impact is way left. And I'm like, what? And I looked, I look at my turret and it spun. And that's when I realized like, man, I never realized how like that can literally ruin a hunt for you. And if you're not aware of it, which I wasn't now that I, now that I unfortunately had to eat that, you know, now I double check. But with a locking turret setup, it makes a world of difference where you, it's not something that you have to be paranoid about. So those are just certain features that used to cost a little bit more that now they're putting those kind of more advanced features that used to be a little bit high dollar in the past in some of your more budget friendly options. I think also zero stop too is, yeah. a, is a great point. Zero stops. Really you start great. to see those zero stops trickling in on the lower lower uh, end uh, scope lines there and that's an extremely powerful thing as well especially there. if you plan on dialing like yeah. you said like if you're gonna dial you want to make sure you can return to zero yeah. if you get a full revolution and all of a sudden you realize wait a minute am i zeroed or just, yeah. <laughs> yeah you might zero but that might be when you were out at a thousand yeah. you pull your trigger on a hundred yard you're gonna be a touch high yeah. <laughs> but um so that's where when you have that zero stop setup i know vortex is offering on, on a number of different you know that new venom that they just released yeah, yeah. that has it yeah. their uh their uh, strike eagle line uh that has it you know and so i'm thinking man if those options i wish those options were around when i first got in where i didn't have you know a checkbook that i could just kind of try and you know go play with play with some money um those are great options and great setups that are more than capable and i know i personally have run uh that strike eagle series beyond a thousand yards and back and it's tracked phenomenal Hey, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong. I've that 3 to 15 you're talking about. Isn't that the one that we I pulled off the shelf yep. the shop the other night? <laughs> yep, that's the exact same one. That's what I thought, yeah. <laughs> he so, isn't using it right now. Yeah. <laughs> so we picked up this topic, and we just took off running with it. But let me reel us back in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. typically how these go, I'm realizing. <laughs> what's, what's the, in you guys' opinion, what's the big difference uh, in a quality scope versus your bargain bin deal? What's the first thing you're noticing picking up out of the box? The, well, the glass, yeah, as I kind of alluded to earlier, that's really, in my opinion, what you're paying for a lot of the time with that that additional price tag that goes with it, that and tracking. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's a few different things that you are paying for with those, you know, those extra Benjamins. But um, when you start to look at the higher quality scopes, uh, you start to notice a distinct difference in the clarity of the glass. Uh, you need to, I guess, start to also look at well, when I'm, uh, if I'm going to use this scope for hunting applications at dawn and dusk, does the objective pupil and the magnification range, uh, is that advantageous to my exit pupil uh, size as well? And can I kind of use that to the best of my advantage as well? But um, as we'd kind of alluded to earlier, you know, if you are just strictly running for hunting applications and you're collecting your dope out to range and that's hard dope and you're not using a ballistic solver or whatever and you're only looking at engaging a target out to you know maybe five six hundred yards type thing and you're noting that dope well any tracking error is going to be contained within that that firing solution or that uh that dope that you've already pre-established so you can kind of get away with it to that degree for me glasses glasses everything and uh i'm not you know, I'm not scared to spend the the additional money on high quality glass because yeah. I value being able to correctly and positively identify that target without mm -hmm. any issues. So, yeah. but you know, as I said, I also understand that dudes can't really um you know break out the checkbook in yeah. uh, in some cases like that. Not without getting in trouble from the old the old right. lady, right? Yeah, I'm gonna sneak <laughs> that one on past. Them. Yeah. <laughs> so when Chris is talking about dope, it's it's a you have like a history book written down of the previous shots you've taken. And you're looking back when you're ranging a target at 600 yards and you're saying 
all these conditions I match or close to match, and this is what I dialed to make that hit last time. So you can use the history of firing that same round and uh, rifle combination to yeah. get you closer to point of aim, point of impact, first exactly. round hit. Yeah. And so then when you take that, like you just explained, but then you put that into a, uh, an optic that doesn't have a, a reliable tracking system in the, in the turret housing, then when you actually do dial that, you may not actually be making the same adjustment. And so that's what we're talking about with tracking. So when we say tracking, we mean if you dialed, say, six minutes on elevation on your previous time, and that's what you're referring to, when you dial at six minutes for this solution, is it actually dialing six minutes or is it more or less? And that's where when you look at, I think you can kind of talk, it's hard to, you know, kind of go high end versus low end or, you know, high end versus bargain bin because it, it needs to be apples to apples and oranges to oranges because, when you have your more budget options and you run those side by side and you talk about, you know, what's different, it's a little bit harder to tell what, you know, what features are better, what have better quality. But if you run, you know, a high end versus, you know, say if we're talking simply um, just like the uh, uh, turret tracking and you go with, a, say, uh, maybe a Vortex Crossfire, one that's not designed for long range, it's more of a hunting designed optic so it's not made to have tracking and turrets that are going to run out to a thousand yards and we're going to compare that to a vortex razor hd amg that is designed for that you're going to see a, a, a significant and obvious difference and so that's where i would say you know when we talk about those different options it's almost hard to really look at the different features um, unless we're comparing them to other budget options because that's where you'll start to see like the venom the strike eagle would compare somewhat to like athlon has uh, the halos btr gen 2 series very similar similar price points similar features you'll notice you know the athlon has a little bit stiffer turrets where a little bit more audible clicks um, they've got a different zero stop system. They're both illuminated. They've both got their, you know, more of a, you know, Christmas tree style reticle. Uh, they're both first focal plane. You know, they've both got locking turrets. So they're all kind of similar features and they're at the same price point. And that's where it gets really hard to see which one is better than the other unless you put them on a gun and go run them. Right. So we, this keeps coming up a lot first focal plane and second focal plane scopes explain the difference in the two who wants that <laughs> that's that's up to you guys so I, who this, wants it go ahead chris you got it <laughs> okay so the uh, the difference between a first focal plane and second focal plane scope is the uh, the first focal plane uh, the reticle is mounted uh, forward of the magnification lenses so as you're running that uh, magnification up and down the reticle itself is changing in uh, subtension being that you know say if you're running one moa or sorry moa reticle or a mill reticle that's uh hold whatever it is subtends regardless of what magnification you're at versus a second focal plane uh, reticle where that reticle is mounted rear of the uh, magnification lenses and so that reticle itself doesn't change in size relative to magnification so when that reticle's remaining the same size as you adjust your magnification, that image size is changing relative to the magnification. The reticle itself, it doesn't subtend at all magnifications. It only subtends at one magnification, being usually its maximum magnification yeah. for those scopes. Pros and cons, lots of yeah. advantages and disadvantages to each yeah. system there. 
Well, and I mean, that's a great, you know, point because a, like a lot of times, well, depending on, you know, where in the terrain you're hunting, but a lot of times hunting optics, your standard hunting optic is second focal plane because you may not be trying to zoom in as to your max magnification. So, but you still need to see your reticle so that you can know what your point of aim and have that to reference on your target, whether it's a buck or a hog or a coyote or whatever. So what Chris is saying, if you have a first focal plane and say you're hunting here in Florida and you're coyote hunting and a coyote steps out at 40 yards, but it's low light, your reticle that's black is now at the smallest size that's going to look like a little, you know, little diamond in the middle of your glass. As you zoom in, now you're looking, yeah, you can see your reticle, but you cannot even see, all you can see is the shoulder of the coyote because you're now that far zoomed in. So you don't want to take away your, you know, your, um, I guess, a field of view of your, your, uh, your game or your target, but then also you need to be able to pick up that reticle so you can have a proper point of aim so that you can achieve a proper point of impact. What I was going to say is I know that like you're saying, 90% of hunting optics, optics designed specifically for hunting our second focal plane. What we see becoming more common now in hunting optic is the, uh, what do they call it? Like the ballistic drop compensator reticle Mm -hmm. where you have the hashes underneath and then on the outside of the box, it tells you zero to a hundred is this one's 150, 200. For specific calibers. Correct. Yeah. What they all fail to mention to you from what I've seen is that that value is at a specific point in your zoom and it's usually not full value. It's around six. If it's a, like three to nine, six to seven yeah. on that zoom range. Well, because the more you zoom in and out, <clears throat> those values change for those hash marks. Right. Well, go, well, you, go ahead. So I guess there's a few different points there to note as well with uh, the, like the fundamentals of those BDCs. There's some issues there that yeah. you need to kind of be need to be aware of as well. So not only as you've kind of uh, alluded to, where the those values, those holds are changing relative that to that magnification, or whether it's a one to one subtension on that set magnification range, but also that BDC is being uh, generated for a specific load, you know, a specific bullet that has a specific amount of drag in a specific air density, which is usually zero feet mean sea level. And it's for a specific muzzle velocity as well. So if you go ahead and you just change the length of your barrel and you go, hey, this uh, BDC was done for a a 24 or 26 inch barrel, but I'm rolling through uh, scrub and brush and I'm going to roll my barrel back to 18 inches, that BDC ain't going to be anything close now with that muzzle velocity shift. So. There's, yeah, there's a, then you, uh, there's a myriad of yeah, problems. Then you tack on, okay, maybe you're going to go and hunt in a different environment or a different, you know, setting where now maybe your, your altitude's changing, your atmospherics are changing, you know, like you like mentioned, the drag, on the, exactly, yeah. the drag on the bullets changing, and then you've got a shorter barrel and yeah, it's not, it's, it's definitely not going to impact where that little dot says it is. Yeah. You live down in uh, like South Florida and you zeroed your rifle right now. You all see how freaking humid it has been this week. <laughs> and Brutal. then yes. you're like, you know what, man, I haven't shot that thing since August, but it's time to go on that elk hunt out. It in was Montana. on three years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's time to go on that elk hunt out in Montana now that it's January or whatever. And man, that's going to be a big difference in oh, yeah. shift and point of aim, point of oh, impact, yeah. temperature, humidity, <laughs> altitude, I mean, everything is going to, is going to play. And, and, we, and so when we mention these, these different factors and, you know, 
what kind of comes into those ballistics. We don't want to overwhelm or, or freak anyone out. It's as simple as these are just things that can impact, um, you know, whether or not you are able to successfully engage that animal or that target. Um, and so these are the kind of things that, you know, we cover these in our courses or we cover these, you know, on these podcasts or you cover these in, you know, all kinds of different, you know, curriculum. But if you're, as long as you're aware of them, now you can attempt to correct for them. Yeah. It's a, it's a deep pit bottomless, (laughs) but so why is it important for a hunter to understand the mechanics of sight adjustment? Well, I would say the biggest where it's going to be, I guess it can, it can be more important in certain scenarios when, if you're going to be hunting, um, where your furthest engagement is within your zero, you may not have to really take that into account, you know? So for instance, if I'm zeroed at a hundred yards for hunting and I'm hunting in Georgia and my buck steps out at 45, I'm going to be fine. However, if I'm zeroed at a hundred yards in Florida, but then I'm going to go on an elk hunt and I might have a, you know, my, my, uh, bull elk step, step out at five, 600 yards. That's where I'm going to have to make an adjustment because my point of aim is no longer going to be where my point of impact is because I'm not shooting at the same distance, much less to factor in the different atmospherics and elevation. And so, um, when it comes down to it, it's really more of, you know, where you're hunting and the distance that you're going to engage that or the likely distance you could engage that animal, that that's going to truly dictate whether or not you're successful at it. There's some people out there who don't even understand that, uh, even when it comes to zeroing a rifle that one click on on most scopes is a quarter inch at 100 yards and when you're looking at that target that has the squares on it those are one inch squares so you can count those squares from the bullseye you know left right up down and you can make the adjustments four clicks per square and move back over towards bullseye to get Mm -hmm. a faster zero instead of going through a whole box of ammo (laughs) i've seen those people Hey, I was those people. <laughs> you know, I was. Everybody's been there. I was at the range one day shooting my 17 Super Magnum at 100 yards, and this guy's over here with this 308 just blasting away at a target at 25 yards. He's like, "How far is that?" I was like, "100 yards." He's like, "Man, I want to get there one day." I'm like, "Bro, today is your day, man. Yeah, just back pick, up, like pick we got that, this. yeah, pick that target up, walk it out 75 yards, and let it fly. Yeah. This is not difficult." Yeah. Like, well, I will say though, um, I know I don't want to jump ahead and if I do reel me back, but, um, like I've learned that bore sighting in terms of literally just looking down the bore of your barrel with a, with your peepers, that's an art, man. Like I used to be awful at it. Now I can, I can take a peek and I'll hit the target first shot. So it, it'll do enough, but, um, it's not that easy. And so I, that's where like, I feel for those guys because I remember I was that guy, <laughs> you know, it's, everybody's got to be there at some point and you, you kind of learn from it, but, um, it, it'll make a huge difference in just understanding, okay, if my bullets impacting here, what do I have to do for it to impact here and actually make the adjustment on the turret rather than, okay, if I aimed here and it hit here, then if I aim over here, it should still, it should hit over right. here. Right. So, I guess I can add something to this because I look at the sights as you know, that is the system that enables you to hit your target. That's Absolutely. really, really like is. the black and white of that, right? Yeah. And so if you, like, if I was to come to you and say, hey, do you think you need to know how to operate that weapon 
to uh, be able to fire it and potentially hit your target? You would tell me yes, right? So the, the, uh, the extension of that is you probably need to understand how to work your sights to be able to aim your weapon mm-hmm. to be able to hit that target. And without, because reel that back into reality, again, the black and white is that scope on that weapon is the thing that will allow you to make that adjustment to account for all of those variables and hit your target at whatever range. So it would kind of behoove you to fully understand how that sighting system works so that like operating the weapon system you can operate the sighting system that goes with being able to hit that target and i think that's just kind of with the evolution of just precision firearms in general you know it went from basic hunting where you know you kind of would zero for an inch and a half high for your little you know kind of your your uh you know i'm good out to 200 um and then now though with just the advancement of ballistics and weapon systems and optics there's so much more capability left on the table when the marksman themselves does not understand the system and so you're really you may be putting a lot of money into that system and you're not getting your full money's worth hey it was a conversation we had the other day about the advancements in optics you were just alluding to um the last 10 years have been just like a boom. huge, huge, a especially boom. with these hunting optics that, mm-hmm. that we're discussing today. Um, the tracking that you guys have been just, we've been talking about, um, the ability for that, for that scope to track in that maybe budget or bargain bin deal. And it may be a little bit stronger than that, or a little bit higher price scope than that, you know, $300 scope nowadays, there are many, many, many of them that can track very, yeah. very well. So I just think it's a good to share with the, with the, with the audience that, you can pick up a pretty decent scope, three hundred bucks. Oh yeah, that'll that'll when you're clicking on it, that sucker can. Yeah, and the reason you know Chris and I toss around, you know, the Razor HDs and stuff like that is, you know, once you drive a Ferrari, it's hard to jump back into Subaru. <laughs> you know, true. it's true. It is it's what it sucks. is, and yeah. it sucks. It's honestly, I, I'm not, I'm not proud of it because you know it's, uh, it, it ends up coming back on you when it comes to finances, but. Um, it's one of those things that you can't unsee, you can't unexperience it, you know? And so I know you mentioned on our last podcast, when the first time you looked through a Schmidt and Bender and about craft your pants. And so you can't unsee it. Now, you know, you know, so you can't act like you didn't, you haven't seen good glass now, you right. know? And so that's like what Chris and I have talked about where, when we talk different setups, if we kind of take ourselves out of that and don't talk about what we've experienced just in terms of, you know, quality for someone that hasn't seen that yet. Oh, they're getting, they're getting so much more for their money. Like so much more. So Zach, you mentioned earlier, we talked, we briefly touched on boar sighting and boar sighting, as you mentioned, truly is an art form. <laughs> And even with today's little boresight tools you can get and with the lasers you shove in there in the, in the end of the barrel, it's still not an exact science. It, it can't be substituted for zeroing a rifle. Absolutely. And a lot of things people, I think, that want to trust the laser, which you fail to realize is you, you, you have this little tool and then you're like, look at this. You drop it on the ground and now your laser is a little bit out of adjustment. If you're not going through, if you don't have a boresighting system that you can re can recenter a laser in if you're using a laser or something of that nature it's not 
perfect center of bore. Even then, it's still not perfect center of bore when you shove it in there. So it's just meant to get you on the paper at 100 yards. Absolutely. And I would, even, looking at. I would even caution with the lasers because you start to um, actually input a little bit of a potential danger and safety hazard there with you see a lot of people that forget to pull that, that uh, uh, laser sight out of the end of the muzzle. And they'll send around, and you'll banana peel, peel barrel pretty quick. And uh, that's a lot of money that you got to go after. And honestly, that's just one of those things. Just I mean, you got to be careful with them. But like you said, it, none of it is supposed to replace a quality confirmed zero. With and when we mean con, when we say confirmed, we mean okay, we we send our first round. We know okay, this is where we aimed. This is where it hit. We're going to make our adjustment, whether it's with our elevation turret, you know, bringing the bullet up or down or our windage turn it, turret, bringing it left or right. And then once we send that next round, hopefully if the scope's tracking correctly and we've got a good quality set of rings that are torqued down to spec that's holding the optic well, that action, that impact will have made the adjustment that we attempted to make. Um, and then at that point, if it's at where if we had an impact at the same point that we were aiming, then you want to send at least three more rounds to confirm that it's hitting that same spot every time. And that's where, um, I think I've had experience with, you know, other hunters where, you know, they'll simply pull the rifle out of the bag. And then when they check zero, they send it. And if it's, you know, edge of the pie plate, I'm good. And that's just not something that me personally would be willing to risk a hunt on especially when we're talking potentially you know hunt of a lifetime or um you know something where uh you know it's something that you have a lot of passion about if you're really trying to go and in, in the success of it is what matters to you and you're going to want to make sure you really hammer down that a quality zero i think uh you can discuss that actually uh in put it re-term it back into hunting speak right so in terms of uh, zero offsets and point of impact uh, from point of aim, if you consider like, if we're talking about, hey, we'll just send it and confirm our zero as long as I'm somewhere roughly on the edge of the pie plate mm -hmm. um, at, you know, if you're zeroing at say a hundred or whatever, I'm good. And you can then consider the vitals of an animal as well, mm -hmm. right? That's if, a good point. If you're, you know, if you're five inches off from your point of aim, at 100 that's almost 5 moa pretty much 5 moa uh, you're going to be 5 moa off at all ranges mm -hmm. now the way that sub 10s right like if you're 200 off now you're 10 inches if you're 300 now you're 15 inches mm -hmm. right so you just kind of need to keep that in yeah. mind like near enough isn't yeah isn't always that's good a, enough that's a really good point if you think about the pie plate idea so if you're holding you know say you're holding on the center of that pie plate and you're five inches off to the right and then all of a sudden when you go line up on that buck and he's facing from left to right and you put your, your crosshairs on those vitals, but you're at 300 yards, now that bullet is 15 inches further. And that's going to be where, I mean, that's out, you're out of your vitals. You know, you're, 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 in a, unfortunately you're, you're hurting the animal and that's not, and we talked about our, our, the ethics of it and just the, you know, the morals of, of being a hunter and an ethical game hunter. Um, and the, this is the way that you truly, 
you know, first identify it and then commit to it. Cause we talked about, you know, the hunters that are truly into it, they truly do appreciate the outdoors. And so a lot of times I don't think that they do this out of complete, like, you know, intention. I think it's just simply at times, you know, negligence where you just, you're not aware of it, but now that they are aware of it, now they're going to make the, the attempt to, to correct for it because you know, no one wants to go out and potentially hurt an animal. Some of that kind of comes back to understanding the capabilities of the platform you're using. Absolutely. Uh, because I am not satisfied with minute of a pie plate out of a, out of a rifle. But when we walked out there to sight in my buddy's Mossberg home defense shotgun with a four power scope and he was pulling minute of a pie plate shooting foster slugs. I was like, dude, <laughs> yeah, that's money. Yep. That's money. Because And that was great for that, for that, Shotgun. It's smooth yeah. bore shooting a quote unquote rifled slug, which doesn't spin in the barrel. It's actually designed to spin in the air for those who didn't know that. That's what the grooves are for. Mm-hmm. To hold that consistently for five shots inside that probably six or seven inch circle, I was yeah. like, dude, hey, at 100 yards, your money. I yeah. said, but I still wouldn't shoot over 50. Yeah. Keep it inside 50, and we got a dead animal. Yeah. At 100 yards, you're still pushing it. Because you're you're talking a slow moving round. Yeah. If a deer decides to take one step at the exact same second you pull the trigger, that's a whole mess you don't have to deal with because you're not in the vitals anymore. You're in the guts. And that's just, I've been there. As a hunter, if you haven't been there, it's not a, not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. It's going to happen. Mistakes happen. And a lot of things as a hunter are out of your control. Uh, that's why you're trying to look at an animal. You try to wait for an animal to get into a position where it's not going to move. You don't want to shoot at an alert animal because they're more likely to move. You want to try and pick one that's calm and feeding and eliminate as many variables as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's exactly right. The variables. There's going to be variables, but then there's going to be variables that you can control, and there's going to be variables that you can't control. And so, like you said, you got to do your best to eliminate the variables that you can. So, what is a good zero distance for a hunter in your opinion i see i see a lot of guys want to do either they're going to call you tell you they're going to do an inch and a half or an inch high at 100 or they're going to zero at 200 yards so you can attack that a few different ways and it really again depends on the application i'm kind of application driven if you probably haven't picked it up already right yeah i would agree Um, you know it it all is relative to hey what am i actually doing with this weapon system what do i want want to achieve downrange and so there's a few different things that you can look at there, like uh, max point blank range. Uh, for those that don't understand max point blank range, it's the range from the muzzle to the maximum distance that you can zero a weapon system and that trajectory remains within the vital zone of a, you know, a dimension, right? And so what you can achieve there is, let's say you might have a point blank range zero for 250 yards a max point blank range of say 280 yards there it is there's a crack and uh you could hold center center on you know point of aim from zero to 200 what did i say 280 yards or something yeah you could hold uh center on the vital zone there from zero to 280 yards and land that uh round or that bullet within the vital zone somewhere above center or below the vital the uh, within that vital zone there at any given range 
Now, that's obviously very conducive to hunting, especially if you don't uh, have a laser range finder or you don't have the time to be able to range a target. You know, it's a snapshot or you're vomiting or, uh, you know, shooting prairie dogs or something like that, right? But um, you need to also be able to understand how to calculate that as well. And probably the easiest way to establish that is using a ballistic solver. Now, to run a ballistic solver, that kind of becomes a little bit difficult if you don't have a good muzzle velocity and the muzzle velocity on the box isn't always uh, the go-to right um probably just uh what? maybe not use the muzzle velocity no. on the box to if you're uh, trying to run a muzzle velocity input for your ballistic solver but um there's a few different solvers out there that have a, a PBR calculator. And so if you know, hey, you know, I'm shooting this deer, I'm shooting this elk or, you know, whatever the, uh, the, the game is, and you know the vital zone of that and you have some general information about your weapon system, you can access that PBR calculator and establish, well, based on this vital zone, uh, with this muzzle velocity in this bullet, I can, I can uh, zero my weapon at this range and have a point blank range or a max point blank range out to this range. And I know anything within this range is dead as long as I hold center, do what I need to do behind the gun and send it. Now, that's, that's very conducive for a range of different applications. You know, Battlefield Zero as well. It always, you know, excellent, uh, excellent even carry over to, to, you know, deployments downrange. But uh, for hunting, that's, that's an extremely viable and advantageous uh, setup uh, for zeroing. Now, the other thing you start to look at is if I'm looking at maybe long range zero, or oh, sorry, long range hunting applications or extended range, I should say. Now we need to start to consider if I'm zeroing this weapon system, should I be zeroing it at 100 yards or meters and establishing that baseline, that foundation from which to dial or hold from there on out. And there's a few advantages to running a short range zero being that if you zero at 100 yards or meters, your bullet occupies the line of sight for an extended period and it's less susceptible to uh, variation in, in um, zero shift due to changes in atmospherics. So to reel that back in, right? If we were to zero here in Florida and then go out to Colorado, uh, you know, with a hundred yard zero, you would see very minimal zero shift from due to just atmospheric change. Now, it's always a great option to go ahead and reconfirm your zero. Don't assume that that weapon system is still zeroed because it's probably been knocked around in the box. You know, the guys in the baggage handling department probably threw it up and down in, and, and let it hit the ground a few times on the way in before they put it on the conveyor or whatever. Test, and Testing exactly yeah. how, uh, you know, detonation proof these pelican cases yeah, are. Exactly, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just make sure. Challenge accepted. I'll see if I can exactly. crack this 1750 case. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you you experience very minimal uh, zero shift due to atmospheric change there. So that becomes advantageous to run an adjustment from one, a 100 yard or 100 meter zero to extended ranges and understanding, hey, I actually have a solid zero on this weapon system, a solid base to go from to make that adjustment and know that I'm going to hit my point of aim, point of impact, point of impact at extended range. Uh, there's a bit of a hybrid variant there that you can work with. If you intend on running, hey, I'm looking at extended long range 
applications, but I'm also interested in using this weapon system for shorter range stuff as well. And I'd really like the idea of a, a max point blank range. Well, you could still zero that weapon at 100 yards or meters and establish that short range zero. And then just note what your uh, your elevation hold or what you need to dial for that to establish that PBR, and then run that up when you actually run it. You want to run your uh, point blank range zero, and then run it back down to you know zeroed for your one hundred yard or meter when you need to go out to extended long range. That's the best of both worlds, and that's mm-hmm. what I highly recommend. And yeah. That's that's yeah. the approach that I take as well, and I think that kind of comes from having the background and understanding of it. And so when you do, when you're actively engaging and participating in long range precision shooting and you have an understanding of how to operate and run that system, how to calculate it, and you understand how to set it quickly, but then also be able to dial back, that's where it's going to be, you know, best of both worlds. But then, you know, I think with what you're kind of referring to, if they don't have that, you know, experience or that level of, you know, um, knowledge or understanding of their system, I would say my zero would come based on the area and, you know, the environment in which I'm hunting. You know, if I'm going to be hunting here in Florida and Georgia and probably most, you know, Southern opportunities, I'd probably just go for a hundred yard zero. Now, if I were to go to, you know, your longer range setups, that's when I would start to consider maybe a different, maybe a 200 yard zero. I'd say 200 would be like my maximum. I've never done a 200 yard zero because of my approach is different, but I'm saying if I didn't have that same approach, that's where I would base it more off of the, the environment that I'm going to be hunting in. Because once you start to zero further, if for some reason your animal steps inside of that, now you run into the potential of having to now hold under the target because that bullet on the flight path is actually still climbing. And so that's where you don't want to, zero too far out because now if you two zero for a 200 yard zero and it steps out at 30 yards it's gonna it could be more of a challenge than you you expect now being aware of it is just different but i would say if if i had if i didn't have the experience of like we're talking about where i could set my my pbr i would go with based on where am i going to hunt at and what's the most likely distance i would have to engage an animal so i know that to the lay person or the common hunter this sounds like rocket science uh but it's not you have to keep in mind when you're when you're listening to this that they regularly on a monthly basis teach this to u.s army infantrymen (laughs) and they understand it so it's not that hard to understand if you just slow it down and and, and, uh i was gonna say will went to high school with me so he knows what my (laughs) academic capability is so if i can discuss this it's really there's just about you know i mean i'm the equivalent of a monkey with a pencil when it comes to this so i i've uh i spent eight years in the army and i know quite a few infantrymen and none of them are that bright but they all get a firm grasp a firm concept around this especially with the job that i did you know we usually had snipers attached to us and i'm like man you're dumb as a brick, aren't you? <laughs> Great guys, but it's not hard to understand. It's a little bit of math, uh, but it's nothing too extremely complex. Once you, a little bit of repetition. Well, we talked about that actually yesterday in our class, you know, because so a lot of times when we run these private courses, 
you know, we'll get guys that are, you know, they're, they're, they're business owners, you know, they're execs, they're, they're, you know, very uh, intellectual and capable individuals and very, you know, in their own field, you know, they would be, you know, at the higher, you know, at the top end. And so it's not that there's a lack of intelligence or a lack of knowledge or ability. It's simply just a lack of understanding or being aware of the concept in the first place. So then when we started discussing it yesterday, you see the light bulb come on because then they're like, Oh, I've never thought of it like that. I've never looked at it like that or that make because it's not as, you know, like we said, it's not like black magic that we're engaged in. And we're just, you know, we have this understanding or ability. It's really more of, you know, Chris has alluded to, you know, you, you simply don't know what you don't know. And so it just comes down to a little bit of, you know, research study. And then once you studied it, it's one thing to know the concept and, you know, the idea of it, but then go put it to work, go test it. And so go go learn it on your own system and your own rifle. And I think Hollywood has done a, a really good job of painting the sniper as a superhuman. Oh no, we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the like the Jedi's of, right. of the real world. Right, and it takes it takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice to be able to do what snipers do. But it's also a in the beginning. Exaggerated. In the beginning, what what did you know at the very at, at the very beginning of this? When, when you started, before you ever went to any kind of sniper school, any, any of that stuff? Oh, not too much. I, uh, <laughs> right. you know, I, w- I grew up on, uh, on MOA, and then we started using mills in the sniper community, and that kind of changed my world a little bit. But, yeah. <laughs> That's when all of a sudden he became the chosen one. Yeah. <laughs> but Start it's, using the force. Yeah. But it's also, <laughs> it's also something you learned. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Anybody like, can learn it if if you take the time and, and Oh, and that's what's that's what's kind of neat. So so anybody listening that may not understand my background, so I'm not military at all. Um so I've not been through any sort of sniper school. I've not been through anything, but I thing is, is I've, I've trained with guys like Chris and Kenny, who, you know, Kenny was a army sniper, sniper schoolhouse instructor, uh, guys like Bill, you know, so I've had all that training, you know, as an individual, but what it simply, what it was, was I got, and I heard about a topic. I had an interest in a topic and I got bit by the bug and I've been dying from it ever since. And so I just dove into it head first. And so like I'm a, just a walking example of you don't have to necessarily go through all that you know military background and training to understand and grasp the concept and be able to have conversations and be on the same page with guys like Chris and Bill to really do that. You can simply just have an interest and in, in learn the topic and now just be aware of it and, and try to try to grow from that perspective. I think a good example of that is um, seeing in our classes that we give. We're, we're, we're taking a short amount of time because no time is precious to everybody, right? So we take in a short amount of time a day and we give a three to four hour, usually about a three hour classroom portion in the mornings. And then we eat a little lunch and we'll have guys banging thousand yard steel by the end. Within, yeah, within a couple hours. Oh, I mean. And, and the concepts start clicking. So any knuckle dragon caveman can learn this <laughs> stuff, I promise you. You know, it's, it's kind of sucks because we're kind of really knocking ourselves down here, but <laughs> we're not, we're not special by any no, means. Not at all. But, but what is, you have to have a teacher, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, uh, this is, I mean, I mean, if, if you are one of those people that's, a, you can learn things from watching videos on YouTube. Good on you. Not me. Yeah. All right. I have to be there. I have to physically do it. Yeah. And without having courses like you guys offer at Heartland, you're not going to learn. Yeah. I, well, and I, that's like when we talk zeros and stuff, that's the sort of thing where when, if you guys that are listening, if you're a hunter, now that we've covered these topics and okay, wait a minute, 
Like now that you know, it's going to bug you until you find out for yourself on your own setup. You know, call us up. We can get you on the line. We can just do just simply the hunter side in day where we can collect your muzzle velocity. We can collect your BCs of your bullets. We can get your scope set up. We can make sure everything's locked down correctly. And then we can kind of stretch out. We've got a 350 yard private range right there at my shop. And so that way, now you have all that information going into your hunt and you don't have to wonder of, oh man, I listened to that podcast and they pointed out all these things and I know I don't know them for my system. And, and now there's a, a sense of anxiety or, or, or I guess uh, um, just, you know, just worry in the back of your mind. And as a, as a hunter, as a, as a marksman, you've got to have a right mental space to be able to go out and, you know, operate to the mo- to your maximum capabilities. So this is, this is strictly an opinion based question. And it's something that kind of occurred to me as a thought when we were talking about, um, zeroing in the minute of a pie plate, why in you guys opinion, has it become acceptable to shoot for a group of organs known as a vital zone versus a specific organ within that group of organs? Because personally, when I'm when I'm zeroing a rifle, I want it a, a zero small enough that I know that that's right about when I'm aiming at a, at a deer. I'm like that's right about where the heart should be. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to hit. Yep. I don't want to go well in that circle that's about eight inches big. There's going to be a heart and a couple of lungs. Yep. And as long as I put something in there, then we're going to have a dead deer within the next few hundred yards. So this is one that we've talked about. We kind of touched on a little bit. And this is one that this is probably the number one conversation I have with hunters. And and it's it's just as simple as the the argument between um, the ability um, to hit what you're aiming at Mm -hmm. versus your confidence in the bullet going to do what it's meant to do and so when you talk different types of projectiles and i want chris to jump in on this in a second when we when we start talking projectiles because i think when hunters talk about hunting bullets they talk they think about expansion and what's going to happen once that bullet enters that cavity in the uh just that terminal damage that it's going to have and so if you can get it within that area they're relying on the expansion and ability of that bullet to go ahead and tear up and shred apart anything that's even near it versus like you and I, and and I know we all kind of have the mindset of, I would rather put my, my bank, my money on my abilities to, as a marksman, place that round exactly where I want it. Even if that bullet doesn't open up, it's going to go right through the heart. You've still got dead deer versus relying on, I guess the ballistic ability of the round and how it's designed. I think, that's where in the hunting community, there's a lot of talk of using hunting ammo versus match ammo and this and that. And in reality, there are some cons to hunting design bullets within certain distances because a lot of times, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but you know, a lot of bullets, they're designed to expand upon a certain velocity. So if they're moving too fast, they actually won't open up. And that's where you get pencil holing through animals and you're like, well, I shot it right where I wanted, but it just pierced right through them. And so that's where the idea of, um, you know, the type of, of projectile you're using, I think that's where that, I guess, mindset of if I can hit within this area, the projectile is going to, I think, it, unless you've watched, you know, ballistic gel testing, the idea of what we think is happening is like a detonation or an explosion going off and which in a way it is but it's not to the extreme that i think some people imagine that it may be i think if we unpack that a little bit further as a shooter you ultimately determine 
your engagement scenario and whether you're willing to make that shot or not. So people talk about, hey, well, what's the vital zone on an animal, right? But if you are... You know, if you're determining, hey, well, I'm going to either make this shot or I'm not going to make this shot based on my ability to hit that vital zone. If your ethical limit is I will only engage a target when I know that I can center punch that that heart valve, right, and deliver that hydraulic shot or conversely, like, well, why don't we ever shoot a deer in the head? Like, why don't we ever canoe a deer, you know, and uh, why don't we ever deliver a circulatory shot? On a, on a deer because at range it's hard to do with mm-hmm. that small vital zone yeah. and that you know that t box on a human or if you were you to know. if you were to be honest with yourself you would limit your range if if you took that approach like you're saying your exactly you would, would limit that range lot. or you you know you would uh, change to hide a hydraulic shot which is why we change to a hydraulic shot and we start to focus on well if i was to aim at the vital zone of an animal i can at least deliver a hydraulic shot to the vital zone there so if you ethically are concerned about your ability to place a shot within that vital zone and hit the organ, you know, to be able to put that animal down, like you drive that as the trigger puller, you drive that. Yep. So, so <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and let you guys in a little secret before we get to the tip of the week. I just talked about aiming for the heart, but I don't even aim for the heart. I actually aim for in that because of that scenario where you have the hunting bullet that punches that hole through there. I aim for a joint in the shoulder where even if it does, well, if you hit bone, it's not going to not expand period. It's going to expand. But if you take out the running gear, even if it doesn't, it's, it's still going into the vital zone. Mm -hmm. Take out the running gear. Yeah. You're going to destroy a little meat, but you're also not gonna have to look for that animal because it's not, it, you literally just disabled its ability to run away. And I've done that multiple times and it's glorious. They just hit the dirt right there and that's it. You're done. Cool. Hey, done. And they lay there and that's it. 20 seconds later, deer's dead. No flashlights. No, hey guys, can you come help me find it? We gotta <laughs> no, it. No. Like I've had plenty of people ask me, how's the blood trail on that 6.5 Creedmoor? I was like, I, I don't know. Never what do you mean you trail don't trail it? I don't, I don't really chase them that far they might kick themselves in a circle a little bit 20 yards or so with their back legs but the front legs they don't work anymore yeah so and that's i don't know that that's all thinking about and you really have to study the skeletal structure of the game you're looking at to kind of understand where that joint should be that's a that's a huge one we're we did a the course yesterday um we were shooting hog targets and shooting a hog versus shooting a buck or shooting a coyote very different, you know, just in terms of like the areas that you may need to focus on and the areas that if you hit them, they're built like a bowling ball, you know, like they're, they may just kind of shrug it off. I know, uh, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, if you've ever hit a, uh, a, a 350 pound rue that's uber thick, like they're just shrugging it off, you know, hogs or boars, they're the same type of thing where if you don't know where to place that round. So like you said, you got to know the, the anatomy of the animal that you're, that you're going to be hunting. So let's talk about ballistics a little bit. For starters, one of you guys do your best to explain to me in layman's terms what are rifle ballistics. Everyone's looking at me. Right. Well, well Chris, here, here's the thing. I'll let I'll get Chris off the hook. Chris will he can give the like the textbook to, layman's terms. Like you know, let let me dumb it down. I'm built for that. Okay, so ballistics would essentially be the uh, the variables that are going to apply what we call drag 
uh, on the projectile. And essentially, uh, the end game is uh, altering our point of impact from our point of aim. Now, I left a large cavity to dive down, but in terms of a, a general overview, I would say that's, that's as, about as simple as you can make it. So you could break that down into uh, mainly for you know, small arms uh, fire, three different fields being internal, external, and terminal ballistics. Internal being what occurs from the time the primer is struck and ignited until the time the bullet leaves the muzzle. Uh, external being from the time that the bullet leaves the muzzle until the time it reaches the target, and then uh, terminal being the time that it enters the target. And uh, mainly terminal involving what type of uh, effect you see on the target itself. External is predominantly where we spend the most uh, time, you know, discussing and accounting for through the use of our sights, you know, how are we accounting for gravity drop? Uh, there's drag within that as well. Um, and then subsequently, you know, if a bullet's experiencing some amount of drag down range, it has a time of flight relative to how long it's going to take to reach the target. And then the amount of gravity drop that or the amount of time that gravity has to work on that bullet as well. With the addition of, you know, now uh, you look at wind drift and the amount of time or the time of flight that the, uh, the bullet is traveling down range and the wind has that, that time of flight to operate on the, or, you know, work to deflect the bullet as well without getting into secondary effects like spin drift, aerodynamic jump, Coriolis and all that. It's not really so, so applicable yeah, for we'll, hunting. Yeah, we'll, kinda, we'll skip that. We'll, we'll, if, that's one of those rabbit holes you glance down yeah. and we'll look right back over. Yeah. If, if you're worrying about the Coriolis effect in a hunting scenario, you're shooting too far. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That that's a just just a touch too far, but so, but why do I need to go spend time on the range when the data is printed right there on the side of my green and yellow box of hunting ammunition? Yeah. Well, I mean, you you already kind of alluded to it earlier when we discussed the BDC reticle, and it's a similar concept in terms of how that reticle is calibrated for a specific round at a specific elevation in a specific environment with a specific barrel length and velocity and you know all these specific variables. The ammunition is the same way where those the data that they print on that box, that was they recorded that data with a specific rifle, with a specific barrel, with a specific load data on a, in a specific uh, location and, and environment. And so the minute those variables start to change for the area that you're going to be using or the rifle you're shooting it through or the, you know, the velocity you're getting from it, that's when it's going to, it's going to change. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it's better than nothing, now, but not by much. Now, wait a so. minute, Zach. You mean to tell me that the ammo manufacturer that I chose chose ideal conditions in which to record everything, to put it on their box, to make themselves maybe look good? And you're telling me that in hunting, <laughs> it's it's always ideal conditions, right? right. Like, <laughs> that's how it rolls? Wait a minute. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I mean, I would say that's, that's kind of where it's – it's, it's really just a reference. It's, it's, it's the same thing as bore sighting. It's not, it's not the best you can do. And that's where when we talk about, like I said in the beginning of the podcast, is our goal 
you know, envision as a company is to really kind of blend the precision rifle community and the hunting and outdoors community so that they can really maximize the the potentials of their, their, you know, weapon systems and their abilities as a marksman. And so that's where, you know, this is an area that you're not maximizing your potential. If you're not gathering your, your real time muzzle velocity and your real time, um, you know, uh, dope and, and your uh, firing solution and if you're not actually gathering that data then you're leaving stuff on the table and you're leaving uh you're not f- reaching the full capability of of um, you know your platform and, and yourself what's printed on the box of your scope with your bdc reticle and what's printed on the box of your ammo is a solid starting point and that's all it should be viewed as yep i would agree that's where you look at that and then you go okay this is where this is where it should impact now let me go to the range and test it. Yep. Right. Because those are the things that that's not something you want to test on game, any kind of game, whether it be trophy game or whether you're shooting a white tail doe at 250 yards. Yep. That, that's just for meat. Uh, that's not the place to test those theories. You no. test that theory on paper and steel at the gun range. Yep. So what's, uh, we, we kind of, we've kind of touched on, we keep going from the biggest shift we make is Florida to Colorado. Yeah. Right. But in the two big shifts you're seeing there that are causing all that difference is temperature and altitude. Why do those make a difference? So ultimately it comes down to the air density, right? And within that, if the air is more dense, the bullet's going to have more drag as it flies down range. Right. And if the air is less dense, the bullet's going to have less drag as it flies down range. So kind of like the way I describe that to people is if I was to stand in a pool and I was to outstretch my arms and I was to wave my arms around in the air and then I was to put my hands in the water and wave those hands around in the water, what's going to produce more drag on that hand as I I wave that around? And so you can kind of, um, to carry that over, if you were at mean sea level, that might be, you know, similar to... Uh, my hands in the water versus at altitude at, you know, 10,000 feet or whatever, where my air, my hands might be uh, pushing through the air there. There's uh, more or less drag. And so within that, that's kind of made up of uh, a few different things. Um, typically temperature will uh, drive a lot of that. And then station pressure, uh, barometric pressure is, is uh, pressure corrected to an altitude rather than station pressure is your pressure at the local location um, or the shooter's location and then to a much lesser degree humidity which uh, pretty much doesn't matter uh, i don't know man we're here uh, yeah. in florida this i was humidity. gonna say <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you cool. shot a rifle in florida like now you're pushing your hand through the pool yeah, yeah. that's what it feels like as, anyway. as bill said the other day if you can swim to the uh, the zero yeah. target yeah. yeah i don't know i don't know if the humidity has as much effect on uh, the projectile but it has a all the effect on the shooter so no, i just all that sweating you've been doing i just thought you're under a lot of stress mate yeah <laughs> nope no nope, that's just uh that's the the welcome to florida that's how you can spot a florida boy <laughs> it's oh man it's so rough rough this time of year and this past week has been extremely humid it's funny though because i mean when we're when we're on the range and we're we're spotting uh spotting impacts it's easy to pick them up it really oh, yeah. is i mean it's oh, a yeah. mac truck flying down the range but yeah other than that it's it can be fairly miserable. Yeah, this this humidity is a spotter's wet dream. <laughs> like you you could spot twenty two long rifle right now. It's it's 
all oh man, it is god awful. Even in the room right now, we had to cut the AC off. It is is brutal, brutal. But so, so go ahead. Sorry to bring that to that full circle. If uh, so, obviously, if your uh, your temperature and your pressure and your humidity changes, the density of the air changes, and so the amount of drag your bullet is experiencing changes. So. If your the amount of drag your bullet's experiencing is uh, different to where you zeroed or different to where you got your dope, um, that's going to create a subtle amount of uh, variance in in impact where you expect it to be versus where it actually lands. So kind of like the whole you know shooting and collecting your dope in Florida versus going out to Colorado, and you know that's ultimately why a lot of people make the transition over to ballistic solvers because those bad boys will just take all that into account for you. Mm-hmm. And the cool part about technology today is, is you can get those ballistic solvers on your smartphone. Oh yeah. 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 Many there's of a them bunch of them out there. Yeah, and many yeah. of them are free too. Yeah. yeah. And there's uh, there's some really good uh, companies now that are doing those ballistic solvers and uh, making it more applicable for hunters where they have that ammunition that's already, uh, you know, pre uploaded to their bullet library Yep. Uh, so that you can just reference that and, you know, a lot of that hard work's done for you minus maybe just establishing a uh, a more correct muzzle velocity, especially if you're running a shorter barrel weapon system. Mm-hmm. So I already see the next time we gather in the studio together, we've talked uh, your the extended range game harvest course. Now we've talked optics and we've talked a lot about ballistics. So in natural line of uh, advancement, we have to talk about reloading. <laughs> oh boy, we jumped. Now, we're not, well, I don't want to get down that rabbit hole tonight. We don't have that kind of time. But that's that br- opens up a whole nother chapter yeah. into all of it. Because yeah. now you control more va- variables, yeah. uh, which is very interesting. Well, we've got a few that will be coming up. I know I'm doing a 22 Creedmoor build, which is kind of a you know a little bit of a wildcat. I know we're doing a 25 Creedmoor build for uh, for Chris for his sniper comp system. Uh, I know you've been talking about doing um, a 338 Federal, so some kind of unique cartridges. So once we get in, we dive down that world. It'll be it'll be a, a good little good little uh, chat. Yeah, I gotta get a reloading room set up somewhere in here. I can't do it in here. If I do it over there on the other side of the garage, I'll get in trouble again because I'm again taking right, over the garage the after cutting half it, <laughs> <laughs> cutting the garage in half, and then I go and take over again trying to reload over there. But yeah, we'll figure it out. Maybe I'll just do it in the kitchen. Yeah, that'll that'll yeah. float, right? Yeah. Should be right. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need this china. <laughs> so, man, tell me some tell me some funny stories, some funny stories, memorable stories, lessons learned. I know you guys hunting stories from the the rifle courses. What do you got? You got some Australian stuff for us? Oh, yeah. In the mountains. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if they're, they're funny. It's just uh, old stories about folding goats in at, you know, range across <laughs> valleys. And, when uh, uh, You should have seen Chris's face when I drove him out to the shop in Altoona. We're heading out there and we're passing by some uh, some horse ranches and all of a sudden we passed by a little goat farm and Chris about broke his neck swinging around. <laughs> but uh, I was like, yeah, nope, nope, nope. Off limits, off limits. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, we, uh, there's definitely, um, I know one thing that I want to do is, you know, Chris has talked a little bit about some of the hunting they've done, you know, over there in Oz, but I know that now that he's here stateside, I want to get him on some hunts. And so we got to set him up, get him hunting some, some stateside stuff. And uh, I know 
one that we were talking about the other night it was uh you know i'm referring to alligators here and he's he's calling them you know crocs and salties and freshies and you know the just a sheer difference in size but you know get him on an alligator or something something that uh he can at least take back there and make us not sound so wimpish when it talks to the comparison of the average size of an alligator to the average size of a saltwater <laughs> crocodile you know you, you talk about that but the whole reason briar's not with us tonight is because he's actually his gator tags just started tonight so he's out Did they? he's out trying yep. to run down a gator right there now he's got Lake yeah. County tags. I was telling him about we got a few years ago. We got um got about an eleven and a half foot uh, gator, and uh man, we about just trying to get him in the boat. Um, about got the the uh, lip of the boat to break the the edge of the water, and we about went down with him, and it was brutal. And I'm sitting here talking about you know that's eleven and a half foot alligator. That's you know that's a big, pretty good sized gator. You know I reference it to a bat size of you know uh, basketball goal. And he's, uh, what did you say? What was the average size of your, your crocodiles? Oh, you said five. They, they, they were kind of hit somewhere around like five, five and a half yards, roughly. Yards. Yeah. Yards. Yeah, that's, I think that's about maximum. But I'm yeah. like, oh my Lord. You just, you just don't go that's within. like placid type you know, stuff. <laughs> you just don't go within like five, five or 10 yards of, of any kind of like water course or whatever. Cause they can kind of launch themselves, like double their body length and, and vertically as well. They'll just snatch you out of trees or whatever. They will actively go out of their way to hunt you. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure Florida's state record alligator somewhere just over 13 feet. Somewhere. I don't, I don't do imperial. 13, well. yeah, yeah. <laughs> some change. Trying to run the, the yeah. imperial people here. Yeah, yeah. Less than five, l- less than uh, five yards. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Okay. So, so you kept you kept referring to imperial yesterday, and all I can think of is like he just looks at me as like a stormtrooper, like an imperial stormtrooper. <laughs> I, that's all I am to him. It's <laughs> yeah. yeah. uh, good. Oh. Yeah, there, was, uh, there was actually this uh, this uh, Crockett's uh, taxidermied and, and mounted in the Darwin Museum now back in Australia in Northern Territory, and I think it's the uh, the biggest croc on record there. And it was in I think it was in the Adelaide River back there, and uh, they had some issues with it taking the, the or attacking boats uh, where dudes would go out you know fishing or whatever else, and it would take the outboard motor off of the the back of a boat and started getting pretty angry about people being in in its uh, territory and so the uh it's a good way to know, get rid of them just take their motor well they, they didn't intend on ac- like they didn't intend on knocking him off actually they were okay. like we'll relocate him maybe maybe he uh he won't like he might might not take to it but we'll give it a shot anyway and so they went out there the uh, parks and rec kind of rangers went out there to get him and they and they tranquilized him or whatever and he was too heavy and so he just uh, sunk and then drowned. Oh. And they pulled him out, and they're like, "Well, what do we do with him now? We'll, we'll put him in the yeah, put him in the him Darwin in, Museum. Yeah, so at least he's put a him big in the boy. Hall of Fame yeah. for it. <laughs> he's a big, big boy. Yeah. Golly, yeah. Uh, Chris, tell us about um, that three seven five enabler cartridge that you you had a little bit of a hand in. What that was designed for, and some of the distances you were engaging with that. Yeah, so uh, that was uh, there was so. The guys uh, out at Applied Ballistics there started working on a, a cartridge, uh, you know, as as Zach said, 375 enabler, and that was uh, geared towards extreme long range uh, applications. And so, basically, the the cartridge there, as I understand it, 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 it doesn't have a parent case, but it is capable of pushing a 407 grain Berger solid, uh, which is a monolithic copper solid at about uh, 2,850 odd feet, give or take, you know, 100 odd feet 
per second there. And uh, that system is conducive to engaging uh, IPSC size targets at 2,500 odd meters. And uh, that's a, that's an incredible, you know, incredible capability to have. It's a real nice uh, cartridge and, and uh, you know, real nice uh, caliber as well. But they actually, uh, the guys there at the laboratory uh, down, uh, downsized it. Its little brother is a 338 enabler, which is uh, capable of pushing a uh, 300 grain uh, bullet at somewhere around that 3200 feet per second mark which obviously it has the recoil to go with it but <laughs> yeah. uh yeah that's uh that's hammering so, so when you when you buy that platform you said it comes with two or three barrels because you have to be changing <laughs> them out right yeah, yeah, yeah it burns quick yeah know? a little so. quick yeah <laughs> man that is that's reaching out so for for our uh quote imperial listeners convert that 2500 for us to to yards for how far are they going that's going to be somewhere around 2750 yards gracious sakes that's that's a poke. That's yeah. reaching out. Yeah, that's, that's getting there. Good. That, that's where that's where it might not necessarily be uh, a hunting application. Um, <laughs> well, for animals, you know, right? Maybe you know if it's humans or whatever they got going on in the military. But I mean, I can only imagine what that could do as an anti-material rifle inside of a thousand. Well, I think the uh, so those monolithics they do really well for barrier blind type stuff as well, but. Um, you know, just by nature of design, right, which I think is pretty typical for a lot of monolithic bullets. But uh, they, inside a thousand, the hit probability on on a target is is crazy ridiculous. You know, there's not too much. You know, given you're doing your job behind that weapon, you're probably going to hit exactly what you're aiming for inside of a thousand. There, so I mean, a thousand seems like a long way until you're shooting something like that. Yeah, then it's yeah. it's not that far anymore. No. Well, I mean, you think about it, uh, uh, you know, uh, comparatively, it might be equivalent to like a 500 meter or 400 meter chip shot for yeah. a 300 wind mag. So. And that's what we were talking about in our course is the amount of shooters and hunters that will come out to a course. And, you know, they never shot over. I mean, most of them never shot over 200 yards. And um, yesterday, our first engagement um, on a hog target was 512. Um, and then we had 100 percent shot uh, impact capability on, you know, the whole the whole class. And, you know, they go from like that seems impossible to like that was nothing like what's the furthest one how how far (laughs) are we going you know and and that's where i think just the understanding of not only you know the what goes into it as a marksman the fundamentals of marksmanship that we you know truly blueprint our courses off of but also the capabilities of the cartridge your weapon system and the optics and now i know those hunters they're not going to question whether or not that rifle's the problem. <laughs> you know, right. they know exactly what that thing can do. And so now they've also trained their abilities. So they're going to be able to go into their hunt this upcoming season with a whole different level of confidence. I guarantee you. And that, that's, I mean, that's the importance of having classes like what you guys are putting on here in Florida and Nebraska and stuff like that is that people then begin to understand that I am capable of this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not as uh Hollywood as it may seem yeah, when yeah. you start out. And we really want everyone to get to, I mean, I remember it, it. What's fun is like, you know, these guys have had the military training, but the reason I'm sitting in this chair is because I remember the feeling I got the first time that round hit that steel and like seeing those reactions in class yesterday, I'm talking, we have one student give a woohoo, like, woohoo. <laughs> and I'm like, I remember that, you know? And so that's where, like wanting to get as many people to get to experience that and really understand, um, I guess, how much just fun it, it really can be and how, how much success you can you could be leaving on the table with some of these hunts that you may be going on. 
All right, Bill, tell us some of your stories. <laughs> I don't have too many funny stories, I don't think. I mean, you, nothing you want me to want to hear, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the tent, uh, our, our base camp tent up in Elk Hunting, when we're, uh, we go to Colorado, I've been there a few years. Um, it gets pretty wild in the tent there after after the hunt's over for the day. But um, let's see. After or before? Uh, yeah, <laughs> after or before, whatever. Yeah. All the same thing. Um, nothing real funny. I mean, I, I, what I, I may want to touch on, though, is um, is the capability of um, some of, like, either the holdover reticles or, or the dialing reticles. I, first time I ever went elk hunting out there in Colorado, um, I just threw together a, a Winchester Model 70 and a 7WSM and I threw about a $200 scope on the top of it has a BDC reticle type in it. But what I did do is go out to the range and with, you know, some of the capabilities and, and training that I've had, and this was a while back, but I went to that range and I, I verified those, mm. those hash marks and those tick marks on that scope. Yeah. And I set it at a certain setting cause it was a second focal plane scope. And I set it at, at it was a three to nine scope. So I set it up at nine. I figured, okay, you know what? I'm shooting across some of these canyons, maybe anywhere from five to maybe 700 yards. And, uh, so I said, I'm going to, I'm going to know these, these yardages for those, for yeah. those, those lines. And, uh, where I'm going with this is if you do that and, and just take that little bit of effort and, and, and try to, to find out what those, what those distances are on those things, it's going to work because yeah. first elk I ever shot was across that Canyon at 573 yards and I didn't touch a turret. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just knew kind of where, where, where that drop was at. I verified my zero when I got out there, yep. when I got out to Colorado, just like we've been talking in this whole, yeah. in this whole podcast here. And so it's, it's, it's way doable with a, with a rig, um, that you, that you can invest in. And you may and, already have, and you may already have exactly. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to go out and dump a bunch of money into no, the stuff no. we're talking about. I mean, you hit it the nail on the head is you know, these BDC turrets or these BDC uh, reticle systems, you know, they may say, okay, the first hash is 200 yards and the next one's 300 and 400. But when you go out and you shoot it with your system and set up, that's that first hash, maybe 300 and the second hash, maybe 500. And yeah. you just have to be able to kind of note it and make, make sure that you, you memorize or, or make notes in a little field pad so that, you know, okay, on this hash, this is actually where it's going to be hitting, not what the box calls for. So it's not that it's not capable. It's you just have to make sure that you confirm and true it to your system. Spend the time on it. Yep. Another thing I talk, you know, we've been talking on a lot of uh, scope optics, rifle scope type optics. One of the best investments I, I've made, and we haven't, I don't think we've talked about it at all yet, is uh, a laser range finding binocular. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Reduce that range uncertainty. Absolutely the best thing. I, one, yeah, range uncertainty because you know the range to the target, no question. And next is... If you have a, a standard binocular, which is great, and there's a lot of great binoculars out there, but if you have a standard binocular and you're glassing an animal, and you have to then drop it down to your chest on that on that uh, harness, and then pick up that little Sig Kilo or whatever rangefinder it is you're using, little Leica or whatever, um, they uh, you you may have just lost that animal. You know, maybe it moved a little bit, and you're trying to find it in that little seven power optic. Um, yeah, fixed power. I highly recommend. I know they're they're a little spendy, but the best investment I made in an optic ever for hunting is a laser range finding binocular mm-hmm. hands down well you see that too now with a lot of these guys that are backpacking out west to hunt like that so every ounce counts oh yeah well oh, yeah. why not just go ahead and wrap the range finder binocular into one right. thing and then yeah. yeah set of two separate systems right absolutely yeah. carry so, that's spot on and yeah. that's where like when we talk about in our hunting classes we talk about 
you know, I mean, Chris did a, does a phenomenal job covering our positional shooting or our alternative positional shooting and discussing the equipment you have with you and what you're willing to carry and stuff that, okay, it may be great to have, you know, maybe a, a, a rear bag or a, you know, a dedicated pillow uh, bag to kind of help support the rifle in some manner. But if you're not willing to carry that, what can act as the same of that, whether it's a sleeping bag, whether it's your backpack, whether, you know, little things like that. And like you said, like if you can tie two systems into one, it's the same concept. You know, if you can use a a sleeping bag as a rear bag, that's going to help with stability of your rifle. So it's little things like that that we cover in our courses where it's just helping you all of a sudden. I never thought of it like that. You know, it's, it, you don't know what you don't know. You don't look at it from that perspective. And so it's just a little bit of a shift of trying to integrate, you know, some of the more advanced long range precision practices to just pra- practical application, uh, you know, hunting based situations. Yeah. And that's some of the things I've seen coming out of you guys as photos and stuff from your classes that I would say, if you're not going to carry it to hunt with, don't bring it to the class. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The worst thing is to get extremely proficient on something you're not going to have yeah. with you. You know, like when Chris has got great tripod setups and this and that, and he's demonstrating on them and they're great. Now, if we just wanted the students to have success at hitting at distances, guess what I'd do? I'd make them rent a rifle from me, one that we built that I know hammers. I'd make them use the best, most expensive tripod we have. And there would be a hundred percent, you know, you know, hit probabilities and impacts. But then when they go to hunt, it's not the same thing, you know? And so that's where we're having them use whatever they're taking on their hunt. And essentially it's a mock hunt where we're literally walking through the field. Like Bill called it a safari where we're coming around a bend and all of a sudden, oh, there's a hog target at 565. We've got to select our position and we've got to get into it in a realistic, fast, applicable manner. Yep. And that's something that's very interesting. You know, we, we spent a whole podcast talking about that and that was episode 69. That was back, man. April, May ago. time, yeah. several months ago. And we talked all about that extended range game harvest class. And I know we had a, at least one listener come out and go through yep. a class with you. Yeah. And, and he's actually even gone ahead and we we're going to be, you know, um, going to be, uh, enhancing his existing Tico rifle setup, going to be putting it into a different stock. He's gone with, you know, just some little bit of equipment stuff that he kind of learned about in the class that he got to use. That was ours that he realized, wow, that makes a big difference. And so he's going to go ahead and make some of the investments on that in, in terms of the equipment with it. So yeah, that was great. Yeah. So we're definitely just like last time, there'll be a link right down here in the bottom um, to Heartland Precision. If you guys want to get on one of those classes, if you're here in Florida or out in Nebraska, or you want to travel to either one of those places, or do you guys travel anywhere to do classes? If they can amass enough people together to run a class. And so not only that, but uh, you know, with how we did it in Nebraska, the way that we loved, and this kind of where we stuck to our roots is we would work with farmers, you know, or just anybody that had land, whether it's farming, hunting, um, anybody that had, you know, enough land that we could verify that it was, you know, safe uh, to, to put a kind of throw up range set up on. Um, we'll travel. We've got a, you know, 18 foot enclosed trailer. We've got mobile target systems. We've got a pop-up classroom setup where we can bring that entire setup to you and do a private range day literally within 24 hours you'd never even know we were there and you can get the entire training set up like that so if anyone's interested in that we can definitely uh, uh kind of discuss that and what it would look like um for you and, and any number of individuals that you may have that want to go through it so let's go ahead and transfer into the under pressure outdoors tip of the week and i'll lead us off by saying this in a hunting scenario one of the things that i see happen 
I've had it happen to me. It happens to probably anybody that's been hunting anywhere where you've stayed in a cabin and you go out to hunt somewhere and you go to take a shot and your scope's all fogged up. Mm. I found the easiest way to prevent that is if I'm in a safe location where I can leave my gun either in the cab of the truck or locked up outside of a heated indoor environment where I don't drastically change the temperature of the, of the uh, air around and inside the scope versus the outside temperature, you have a far greater chance of that not happening. Yeah. Cause that's what's causing that fog is the fact that I brought this rifle into the camp last night. I propped it up on the wall next to the wood stove. Everything got good and warm. I walked outside and it's 18 degrees fog. Well, and I've even, when I'll break in rifles here in, in Florida, I'm working on them in a shop where, you know me, I got to I gotta have my AC busting, you know, so the AC's running. And then I got to go test in zero, and I step outside, and it's a little toasty and humid. And all of a sudden, I've got to have a, I've got one sweat towel for me and one towel for the optic. And so, because just, just the change in, in temperature and humidity, it'll, it'll beat up real quick. And I know they make stuff like, uh, you know, kind of like the lens. Uh, uh, anti-fog. Yeah, anti-fog yeah. stuff. Um, I know some like kind of the same thing with like scuba. If you're into like scuba diving or free diving where you're wearing snorkel mask, same concept with the uh, kind of the applicant that you can put on the inside of your mask so that you're not fogging up. Uh, same concept. So um, I would say, so I guess I'll go ahead and go next, but I would say my tip would be, um, you know, this is kind of universal in life, but especially with what we talked about tonight is uh, trust, but verify, you know, so you can trust the information that may be on your, you know, you know the box of your scope or the box of your ammo, uh, but verify, you know, so that can, like we've said this whole time, it's nothing more than a starting point. So your bore site, trust it, but verify it and then validate it and go through and tune it and true it. Um, same thing with your ammo, whether it's your velocity, whether it's, um, you know, your point of impact shift, point of impact change, cold bore shooting. Um, that's another one that that's a, another good topic for some time. Um, but all in all, trust the information you have, but go ahead and verify it so you can have confidence in it on that hunt. Chris, Bill. Go ahead, Chris. So after you verify that information, what I like to do is use a uh, risk coach and slip that, write that on a card, all that information for quick reference, slip it into your risk coach and then run it on your arm so that you've got a, that as a quick reference. Or you can run like your, your DA cards, like your dope cards in that risk coach as well if you were doing extended range uh, game harvest type work as well. So Chris calls it a wrist coach. So in America, we call it a QB play caller. So if you watch college football, it's just a QB play oh, column system. Okay. So <laughs> I was having to explain him the difference in, in college football. Here. I needed like a professional translator. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and honestly, but that's a really good point, though, because you can go to your local sporting goods store and you can pick up a, you know, a wrist coach or a, a play caller for five bucks. And it'll have a little calling system and they'll have actual gridded um, kind of like a spreadsheet little boxes and you can write the distance and your your correction or you can write you know at this elevation uh this was my muzzle velocity you know so just little ways to detail it like that but that's actually a really good point you can pick those up at your you know bass pro your academy sports your local sporting goods store even walmart may have uh you know at least a a similar setup yeah at the right time of year i'm sure it's pretty easy to find a walmart and walmart stuff changes with the seasons but yeah definitely when it's about to hit football season drop in you might get a buy one get one (laughs) when when pop warner's going on yeah yeah. you'll be able to find them in walmart absolutely uh my tip of the week let's go with um yesterday uh end of the day 
we uh, for our extended range game harvest, we had a little bit of a shower come through, a little rain shower come through. And uh, we scrambled and, and uh, everybody got soaking wet, but we actually got the equipment in, in a decent amount of time, so it wasn't super wet. We threw some mats over the rifles in the back of the pickup so they didn't get like poured on, but they were absolutely wet. So um, what I would recommend, tip of the week, take care of your equipment. Definitely maintain it. Um, in, in yesterday's case, if you're out and you have that, that scope fog up on you or that or that rifle gets all beaded up with uh, condensation because it's humid outside, break that bad boy down when you get it home. Mm-hmm. Wipe it down, dry it out. You know, wipe, wipe the under, underneath the action. What I do on the action, if uh, when I get a new rifle that's like a blued steel, there's many, many people have a, a walnut stock blued steel rifle. I'll pop that thing out of the stock and I'll put Carnaba car wax underneath that, underneath that action. And uh, that'll kind of seal it. And even if there does get a little bit of condensation or something, it just beads up and then eventually dry off, but it doesn't get into that steel where you can get a bunch of rust and stuff underneath there. Punch the bore, make sure you pull at least pour, pull a bore snake through it. Um, if you don't, if, if you want to go beyond that, which I would probably recommend, go ahead and you know patch it with a, uh, with obviously Hoppy's knife or whatever solvent and then, and then uh, throw a little oily patch to it too, and then another dry one. Yep. So maintain your equipment. That's my big tip. Yeah, I was going to point out when when you were talking about maintaining your equipment, that doesn't just mean running a bore snake through it. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. That. That. They're great tools for a quick wipe down, but that is not a clean bore. You're not going to get that from a bore snake. Yeah. No. And yeah. there's that is something you can definitely watch on YouTube and learn how to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a crusty old NCO coming out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you guys for joining me. I mean, it's been a lot of fun. We'll definitely link you guys down in the in the podcast description again, and make sure you guys are are going on. And uh, if you're loving the podcast, I mean, give us a give us write us a review. Uh, come out, buy some tickets to the pig roast. Meet us. Come meet the podcast crew out there. I don't know if Zach's going to be able to make yeah. it out there to the pig roast or not, but it's going to be a good time. We're going to kick off hunting season with a with a bang and give away a nice brand new obsession bow, fully rigged. I mean. That's almost two thousand dollars worth of bow and, and sight and rest and all that stuff there. That's gonna give we're gonna give away in a raffle. I'm not a bow hunter, but that's a great way to start. So maybe <laughs> yeah. I'll, if I get into it, hey, we'll we'll see. It really is. It's a great bow, and the the optics or the, the sight and the rest you're getting it's it's all quality quality awesome. stuff. Very, so, that's awesome. Very nice. Um, and then all the proceeds from that goes to to benefit Operation Outdoors Freedom uh, awesome. in Florida. So which takes wounded vets on special opportunity hunts across the state. So. You guys come out and join us. Eat some awesome pig. We've got a um, like a box, a Cuban microwave, and we're we're cooking a whole pig. We're gonna start about four thirty in the morning. We'll eat around noon or one o'clock. So it's gonna be a good time. Very That'd cool. Awesome. If fun. you came to the crawfish bowl, same park. Okay. Probably the same pavilion. Haven't looked at my reservation yet. But it's one of those two big pavilions out there. So plenty of parking, uh, and and plenty of space to come hang out and enjoy the day with us. But we're definitely going to have you guys back on again. We're going to talk reloading sometime here in the future. But I really appreciate you guys joining us this week. This is good. Hey, good. Thanks no for having us. Thanks yeah. very much. Yeah. All right. You guys have a good night.